hear the word that our sovereign and gracious Lord has given to us from Psalm 22. We're going to pick up at verse 21. The last words of Christ's suffering in the first half of the psalm, and he says, Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall worship, shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is our glory to study it uh, and to worship you through it and to have our lives adjusted to it. And so we pray that you would guide my preaching, enable me to be faithful minister of your mysteries. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm 22 is very neatly divided up into two parts, and I believe that 1 Peter 1, verse 11, perfectly captures the two parts of this psalm when it talks about the Old Testament saints who, quote, testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And so the sufferings of Christ are Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21a, and the glories that follow are... Uh, verses 21b through to the end of the psalm. So this is one of my rare uh, two-point sermons, of course with a couple of subpoints, right? Uh, last week I pointed out that uh, Psalm 22 through 24 um, constitute a trilogy of messianic uh, psalms that really are dependent upon each other. Uh, psalm 22 is the suffering Savior who is guaranteed to reconcile the world to himself. Psalm 23 talks about him being a shepherd who cares for, gathers, and protects the sheep that he died for. And Psalm 24 shows the divine king who was the Lord of his people. And some have ca characterized those three psalms as being the cross, the crook, and the crown. And last week we saw how they fit together. They complement one, uh, one another just perfectly. And I'm not going to repeat those ideas. Uh, for our Resurrection Day sermon, I want to focus on the second half of Psalm 22, on the glories that follow Christ's resurrection. So most, most of my sermon will be on point number two. But I do want to uh, take about four to five minutes to at least give you an overview of the first half of the book. And we'll start with the title. The title says, To the Chief Musician, which ties this psalm in with Temple Liturgy, and the sacrifices that pointed to Jesus. 
It continues by saying, set to the deer of the dawn, which foreshadows Jesus being hunted by demons and by men right from the time of his birth. Herod was against him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, other leaders of Israel. But more importantly, Satan was trying to destroy Jesus from the very moment that he was born. And he continued to hunt him throughout his life. And this psalm is going to use some very, very vivid imagery of that demonic oppression and uh, attacks that were brought against uh, Jesus. Verse 1 shows Jesus forsaken on the cross by the Father. And you'll recognize those words, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as being uttered by Jesus during those uh, three hours of darkness. And so this part of his suffering has to do with abandonment. Abandonment is a very real and a very deep kind of suffering. And yet verses 3 through 5 show a complete trust in the Father. He says, you are holy. He never questions God's goodness, and that too is a kind of suffering, uh, doing right and thinking right even when life is terrible. It's a kind of self-denial. He also says, enthroned on the praises of Israel, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Uh, Spurgeon reminds us, three times over as it mentioned, they trusted and trusted and trusted and never left off trusting. So here is an example of trusting that can be given to the afflicted, to you and to me, to trust when everything goes wrong, to trust when even it seems like the demons are triumphing, and when humans are opposed to us. And so we should do like Christ and not grumble when life seems unfair, but rather to say to God, you are holy and I trust you. Or to say as Job did, even if you slay me, I will still trust you. The next aspect of Christ's sufferings are seen in verses 6 through 8, where Jesus receives the scorn of men. And it was heaped upon him during his entire time on the cross incredibly demeaning words and ridicule and despising and shame. And uh, so this really constitutes suffering under verbal abuse, social abuse, and emotional abuse. Then verses 9 through 11 show that trouble was really not very far from him, even from the time of his birth, and yet he trusted God in all of that. By the way, this is what constitutes Christ's uh, act, uh, his, uh, active obedience. There was a passive obedience where he suffered, but this is his active obedience where he lived a righteous life so that that righteousness could be given uh, to us. Verses 13 through 14 introduce again the demonic tormentors that goaded men to torment him. Then verse 15 deals with suffering of his body. So there was weakness, his bones are out of joint, inner agony and thirst. And verse 6 gives us six kinds of suffering. First is demonic attack, for dogs have surrounded me. Then social attack by his countrymen. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Then comes physical pain. They pierced my hands and feet. Then the shame of nakedness. I can count all my bones. Or actually some people say this was his bones being uh, exposed from the scourging with a cat of nine tails. Either way, it's a new kind of suffering. Um, then comes social pain. They look and stare at me. Then losing everything, even his clothing, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then comes Christ's prayer to the Father to be delivered from all of these sufferings. And so that's a five-minute overview of the first half of the psalm. 
And then the glories that follow start with the last sentence in verse 21. You have answered me. Now that little phrase there is the hinge upon which the whole psalm uh, swings. And so the question comes, when was that answer? Uh, when, what were the prayers of Jesus answered? There were some aspects that were answered the moment that he died and he went to paradise and uh, he was protected from men and from demons. Uh, they no longer could have access to uh, him. And really for us, we can look forward to death too. It's conquered. We go straight to paradise. And so there's a sense in which we're delivered in our souls anyway and experience glory. But this prayer actually wasn't, and commentators agree, it wasn't completely answered at his death because part of the prayer is that he would be delivered from death. And as another psalm says, that his soul would not be left in, in Sheol. And so um, the uh, prayer really was answered on resurrection day. Uh, you have answered me is separated in our version anyway from the rest of verse 21 because this is now the glorious transition that happened on Sunday morning on, on resurrection day. It was um, the day in which every aspect of the previous prayer was completely answered. And I want to just make a, a quick application even from that because um, I would encourage you not to think that when God delays answering your prayers that he's not listening to you. He's not going to answer your prayers. Here was prayers of Jesus, the one whom the Gospel of John says the Father always hears. And here he says, yes, the Father has answered me. But it was a delayed answer. It was only delayed by three days, but it was a delayed answer. And so the point is that um, we, we sometimes have the testing of our faith just as Jesus' faith was tested by that delay. Uh, it's a kind of suffering as well. But a prayer, every aspect of the prayer was answered at the resurrection, and then he ascended to his throne in glory. So the rest of the sermon, we're going to be looking at the growth or the growth of those glories that followed the resurrection, or another way of saying it is the growth uh, of the kingdom to the end of time. Uh, his death was not in vain. His priesthood was not in vain. Eventually, this will be a redeemed world. And so I want to look at each stage of this gradual growth because I think it can help us to quit being discouraged. Uh, many of us, myself included, really wish sometimes we could have instant success. But when you look at the different parables of the kingdom that are in the Gospels, it talks about a gradual, almost imperceptible growth of that kingdom. I've included a picture in your outlines that shows one of those parables. It's the mustard seed. And I believe it's the Brassica nigra mustard seed, uh, the black mustard seed. It was the smallest seed in their gardens at that time. And uh, it was what Mark calls an herb. You know, the other Gospels mention tree, but Mark mentions it's an herb. Clearly it has to be an herb that grows as tall as a tree and acts like a tree, okay? And so has a tree-like... Uh, figure And there's only one plant in their gardens that fit that, and it was Brassica nigra. It was a, a black mustard plant that grew from 6 to 30 feet tall. 30 feet tall is a pretty tall herb. <laughs> it's tree-like, right? So um, that's what I think uh, it was. And really, that small mustard seed is what we see the beginning of his kingdom in verses 22 through 24. It starts off with a remnant of Jews who were saved shortly after the resurrection. 
verses 22 through 24. Let me read that again. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. Now there are several things I want to tease apart from that uh, paragraph, but I want to first of all look at who this is describing. It is not describing our generation, which is in the next section. Uh, this is describing the very first generation of Christians. Now, some of the same principles will later be applied, such as singing in the midst of the congregation. But if you look at verse 23, you will see that these Christians are called, quote, the descendants of Jacob and the offspring of Israel. So this is not the metaphorical Israel such as we are. These were the literal descendants, the children of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. By the way, Jacob and Israel, just two different names for the same person, and all of his descendants. So it's the very first stage of the kingdom that was almost entirely composed of Jews in Israel. And what's remarkable about this first stage of the kingdom is that how it highlights Christ's mercy and his forgiving heart. It really is remarkable because Israel had rejected and killed Jesus, and yet Jesus began his kingdom by saving his enemies. And he didn't just make them slaves. Jesus tells the Father, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Hebrews quotes this verse and glories in the union that the first century church had with Jesus. It says, for both he who sanctifies... And those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And the word for assembly is ecclesia, that's church. He's not ashamed to call the church his brethren, and the early church was composed of Jews. So really it was the reconstituted Israel, the new Israel. And let's think of that word, not ashamed, because I think most of us have had times where we, we realize we have plenty for God to be ashamed about in our lives, but the beauty of his salvation is that the sins that we've committed were forever taken away by the sufferings of Christ in the first 21 verses. And because of our union with Christ, we are adopted by the Father and thus are brothers of Jesus. By the way, sisters, uh, in the Hebrew, when brothers are mentioned, it includes the females. It's the way that they, they talk. So all of us are adopted siblings, so to speak. And there's more. Look at the word for praise in verse 22. It says, in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And that word for praise is halal and can mean singing praise. In fact, uh, one version translates it that way. I will sing your praises in the midst of the assembly. I think that's a great translation because that's the inspired way that Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 12 translates this when it quotes it exactly that way. So Jesus is somehow singing in the midst of this first century church. I want us to think about that a little bit. What does it mean for Jesus to sing in the church? Well, the upshot of this verse is that from the resurrection on, Jesus is so identified with his people that when they gather to praise the Father, Jesus meets with us and sings praises to the Father through us. He is the one who leads our worship. 
He is our singing Savior. He is in the midst of us today by His divine Spirit. It speaks of His mystical union with the church. By the way, that concept of a mystical union, I wish I could get into it, but I'm not going to. But there are entire books written on that subject. My absolute favorite book is by Hugh Martin, uh, The Abiding Presence. It's a remark. It just makes me weep to realize the incredible privileges that we have by our union with God. Well, anyway, Christ singing in the midst of the congregation has huge implications for our worship. Let me give you six. First of all, it means that Jesus endorses singing in the church. And that's so obvious, I shouldn't even have to say it, but there is, there is some people who absolutely do not get this. They are very opposed to singing. I know churches that will not have ever, you can go through an entire year and not hear a single song sung in that church. They say, we're here for the preaching. That's all they care about. But Jesus is a singing Savior. He sings in the midst of the assembly. Second, Jesus doesn't want to sing alone. Okay, the words in the midst are a very strong description of Christ's union with and participation with the congregation. Now, if Hebrews 2 indicates that he's not ashamed to call us brethren and to sing in our midst, then we ought not to be ashamed of meeting with him and singing with him. So it's a call not just for church attendance, but it's a call for church singing. And yet some people don't like to hear themselves sing. And I say, tough. Jesus wants you to sing. He wants to be singing in the midst. Now, if you are singing off-key, you can sing a little bit quieter, but still, <laughs> still, be singing. He wants you to sing. Third, there is a special presence of the Lord in the church that is not true elsewhere. And this is one of the reasons why Reformed people have spoken of the church gathered as being a means of grace. God causes special uh, blessings to flow from Zion. Now, um, he's omnipresent, so it doesn't mean that he's absent from your homes. We, we don't mean that at all. But the scriptures are quite clear that there is a special presence and manifestation of Jesus when the church is corporately gathered for worship. Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And commentators point out, this is not talking about a Bible study. The context is church and specifically church discipline. So there's a special presence. Fourth, our worship services must be led by Christ and empowered by Christ. It's one of the implications of the resurrection. But the question comes, well, how can we do that since he's not visibly here? And I would say it's through his word. It's through his word. The first phrase indicates that it's Christ's word that is delivered to the brethren. He declares the Father's name when the word is preached. And the second phrase indicates that it's Christ's songs that are lifted up to heaven. In fact, I would dare to say that if Jesus doesn't sing the songs in the midst of the congregation, if they are not his songs, they won't get past the ceiling. Just as we need his intercession for our prayers, we need his intercession for every aspect of our worship. Well, fifth, that means that all of our songs must either narrate the Bible word for word, as our Psalter does, or they must be an exposition of the word, as our hymns and songs are. Our singing and all of the rest of the worship must be Bible-saturated, or they are not truly Christ's words being sung or prayed or preached. 
And it very well may be true what uh, the RPNA and some other uh, expositors say, that he's actually specifically talking here about psalms, singing psalms. We are commanded in the New Testament to sing psalms in addition to uh, hymns and songs. And so if that's the case, then the church really has robbed itself of a great deal when they have failed to sing the Psalter, and especially the imprecatory psalms, which are the nuclear weapons of the church. If, Jesus, if there are his prayers, and the Father always hears his prayers, when the church is willing to sing his prayers, there is power. There is unparalleled power that could be unleashed, because, uh, again, the Father always hears. But imprecatory psalms, sadly, are 100% absent from many, many churches. And then finally, Edmund Clowney of Westminster Seminary points out that this verse is a key passage for Christ-centered worship. Uh, we must always keep in mind that without him, our worship, you know, without him we can do nothing, right? But certainly we cannot worship. So verses 22 through 24 so show Jesus building a Jewish church, what we call the New Israel, in the early stages of the first century. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now moving on to verses 25 through 27, we see this tiny remnant grows into a great assembly, a huge assembly. Uh, it does so by going beyond the borders of Palestine and incorporating Gentile families into the church, into the new Israel, from every tribe and nation. And I find it interesting that it incorporates families, not just individuals, families. The family is the most foundational building block of the church. It is a republic of families, not, uh, not a democracy of individuals. And we'll get to that in a bit. But let's look at the first phrase in verse 25. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. That's almost a repeat of what he had said in the first century church. Uh, even though he's moving to a largely Gentile church, he continues to be singing in the midst of the assembly. This time, not a small remnant, but a great assembly. He goes on to identify with us in our vows as well, saying, I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Notice that families as families worship together, Churches made up of families, but those who eat of the sacrament are a subset. They are those who are able to take the vows, who fear the Lord, those who seek Him actively, those who remember, and those who turn. But let me outline eight additional things that characterize the privilege of partaking of the Lord's table. First, the Lord's Supper is in a context of praise, not of sorrow. Some people don't think that they're properly celebrating the Lord's table if they're not crying or if they're not sad, remembering the, the death of Christ. But here's the thing. We serve a risen Savior. He's not on the cross anymore. And those crucifixes that still have Jesus hanging on it, I think, do a disservice to our faith. And so Jesus is praising. He's not weeping. You know, he's praising within uh, the assembly. And we have plenty of reason for joy as well. The second thing to notice is that this communion meal to which Christ calls us to rejoice is in the great assembly. This is not a meal for private participation, as some people are wont to do in many home churches. They just do it in their family. No, 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 no. 
This is something to be celebrated in the great assembly. And Paul several times speaks of the Lord's table as not being for the private homes, but for when the church is all gathered together. Third, the Lord's table is connected to vows. But I find it very interesting who is taking this vow here. Jesus is. He says, I will pay my vows before those who fear me. Notice that the my is capitalized there. It's an interpretation, but I think it's referring to Jesus. Jesus is rejoicing. Jesus is making vows in the Lord's table, and he makes those vows in the great assembly before those who fear God. Now, to me, this is staggering that Jesus would be willing to make a vow on my behalf in the Lord's table, but he's so committing himself to us that he does so by way of a vow. Now, we make vows to him as well. In fact, by the way, that's why this Lord's table is called a sacrament. It's from the Latin sacramentum, which is the vow that was made between a commander to his troops and the troops to the commander. It's essentially a visible vow that's made before God. Fourth, we who are gathered to eat with Christ are called to fear God. We're described as those who fear him. The fear of the Lord is an absolutely essential feature of the Christian faith. Now, it's compatible with praise and joy, but it does show reverence, and we should come with reverence before this table. Fifth, it says that the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Now, several commentators take the Hebrew word for poor as meek. Either way, you know, uh, it works. If you're poor in spirit, you will be meek. You'll be in total dependence. But the point is... This is not a meal for the proud. This is a meal for the meek or the poor in spirit. In other words, we come to the Lord's table not because we're strong, but because we need his strength. That's what I preached on earlier. Uh, We come not because our lives are put together, but because we need him to put our lives together. Now, he does have conditions, and those conditions are even laid out here, and they're explained elsewhere. So there are conditions for coming, but it's not being strong in spirit that is one of them. Sixth, it is these meek or poor who are satisfied. Some people come to the Lord's table and they get nothing whatsoever out of the table. They don't find any blessing. But when you come in faith, when you come in meekness, you are satisfied. Uh, What an incredible promise in connection with the Lord's table, that we will be satisfied. Why? Because Christ is with us. He's fulfilling his vows on our behalf. He's not just a doctrine. He is a resurrected Savior who makes this sacrament effective. Seventh, this is not a passive sacrament, but an active seeking of God by faith. It says, those who seek him will praise the Lord. So why do we praise the Lord? Because if we seek him by faith, we shall surely find him. The reality of God's presence is guaranteed, but we must seek him by faith. And then there's one more point in these two verses I I find very encouraging. Jesus speaks to us saying, let your heart live forever. Now think about that. This is his demand. Let your heart live forever. The very one who spoke the worlds into existence and who said, let there be light, and there was light, commands, let your heart live forever. That means your heart is going to live forever. We're not going to always be in doubt of our salvation, hoping, like some people think, that if we work hard enough, eventually we'll be there. No, our eternal life begins right now. Let your heart live forever. Those are words of security. 
And by the way, we are currently living in the stage of the kingdom that's being described in verses 25 through 27, a time when families from every tribe and nation are being gathered into the great assembly. Now, I think there's a lot more gathering to be done. But verse 28 indicates that Jesus is not satisfied with families from all nations being saved. That's great. But he also claims the nations as nations. He says, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. He doesn't just rule over the church. He rules over the nations. He claims the nations. The Great Commission will not be fulfilled until all nations are discipled to obey all things that Christ has commanded them in his word. And that hasn't happened yet. That is yet another future stage to the kingdom. Now, we're contributing to that stage, but we are not there yet. But there are more stages after that. Jesus won't be satisfied with only the heads of nations making a covenant declaration of obedience and enforcing obedience in the nation. He wants everybody in the nation doing so. So verse 29 shows a further progress. All the prosperous of the earth, note that word all, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. Eventually, planet Earth will experience such revival and reformation that absolutely everyone from the richest to the poorest of those nations will worship by bowing down before Christ. By the way, we ought to learn to bow down in public worship and in private worship. But I love the extent to which Christ's kingdom is guaranteed to go. Now, I've been mocked by amillennialists, by friends. <laughs> oh, Phil, you're a triumphalist. I say, yeah, what's the alternative of being triumphalist? A defeatist? A failure? A washout? <laughs> I mean, we can throw the names back and forth. That means nothing. What does the scripture say? That's the key thing. And I love passages like this that indicate that Jesus guarantees his victory will be over everyone eventually. 1 Corinthians 15 says, all enemies must be put under his feet. Colossians 1 says, all things that are created must be redeemed and reconciled to Christ. Jeremiah 31 says that the new covenant progress will eventually be so successful that evangelism won't be needed anymore because everyone will know the Lord. So at that stage of the kingdom, we will be long past the temporary swamps, marshes, and salt pits. That's a metaphorical figure of some pockets of unbelief in Ezekiel 47, verse 11. When this stage arrives, the church won't be able to find anyone to evangelize. They can be hunting the highways and byways. They won't find anybody to evangelize. Jeremiah 31 says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. So this section anticipates some period in future history when everyone will be in the church. But that's not the last stage of history either. The post-millennial optimism of this chapter is off the charts. Just having one period of history when everyone believes, I think, would be wonderful. I'd be totally satisfied with that, but apparently Jesus is not. Uh, verses 30 through 31 say that this characteristic of everyone believing will continue from that period on and extend to all generations as long as there are humans being born. It says, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted to the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. He has done this. 
Only he could do this. His universal kingdom in which all are saved, which is the previous verse, verse 29, will span multiple generations. It's uh, the word posterity, okay, Uh, tzera, a next generation door, and yet another people who will be born. So at least three generations will come after verse 29. And so this is one of many scriptures that makes me 100% convinced that Christ cannot come back imminently. There are too many prophecies to be yet fulfilled. All of the imminent passages were fulfilled in the first century. All of them. But not his second coming. Not the end of history. Uh, there are way too many passages. For example, Isaiah 19 mentions a time where there are several stages in Egypt's history where Egypt will have quite a sizable minority uh, who will be Christian, and that sizable uh, thing I don't think has happened yet, but then a majority of Egypt will be believers, and then 100% of Egypt, and then finally they're going to be having good godly relations between Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. This and many other passages are yet to be fulfilled. There is so much more in human history, and his resurrection from the grave was the assurance that God had begun his kingdom and would fulfill all of the ancient promises made for planet earth. So let's go back to verse 21. The resurrection of Jesus was not only God's perfect answer to Christ's prayer, it was the guarantee that the Father always answers all Christ's prayers. And what's encouraging to me is he continues to pray for you. He prays for all of the elect. He prays for his kingdom to be advanced. He prays that all of those promises will be fulfilled. Those prayers will be answered no matter what Marxists, critical race theorists, or other God-hating opponents might rise up. It doesn't matter. Jesus will win. Amen? Now this means that the resurrection of Jesus is not only the hinge upon which this psalm swings open, but it's also the hinge upon which all of history swings. Up until the time of the resurrection... History was generally going downhill with occasional reversals. But after the resurrection, there was an upward swing of the kingdom with occasional reversals in some segments, but not the world as a whole. I mean, here in the West, we're living during a time of reversal, aren't we? Uh, It's pretty bad, but not worldwide. Worldwide, the church is growing off the charts. It's just astonishing. And so... Um, downhill to the cross till everybody's abandoning Christ. Uh, It says the sheep were scattered. And then a reversal of history from the cross. It makes a cross-centered perspective on history. And according to the last, and Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, right? But so many eschatologies out there uh, are defeatist. No matter what they say, they they see everything is going downhill. According to the last verses of this psalm, history will not end with a whimper and a great apostasy, as so many people have supposed. This is a gross misinterpretation of Revelation 20. And I've been a part of that misinterpretation of the past, and I've confessed that to the Lord. As my sermon series on that book showed, Revelation 20 shows that the final gathering of Gog and Magog is at a time when the world is converted. And Gog and Magog, who don't exist anymore right now, long since dead, buried, uh, will be resurrected from Hades to give one last attempt to overcome and overwhelm a Christian world. But before they can do so, 
Christ will judge them, cast them into the lake of fire, and cause this world to enter into its final and permanent stage of glory. And so very literally, this psalm depicts what 1 Peter 1.11 talks about as the sufferings of Christ, which were already past, and the glories that follow, which had already begun to increase. And so the bottom line is we ought never to grow disheartened or discouraged. If Jesus was raised from the dead, which he certainly was, then the Bible guarantees, as Isaiah 9 verse 7 words it, that of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Why? The last phrase says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Or as the last uh, phrase of this psalm words it, he has done this. His resurrection guarantees it. May we believe it. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this psalm. Uh, what an encouragement that Jesus bore away our sins in the first half of this psalm. And he rose victorious and that we were raised with him and we're seated with him in the heavenlies. And this mystical union that we have with Christ enables us to be able to say that we are overcomers that uh, everyone who is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Father, give to us this faith that lays hold of the victory that Jesus Christ has accomplished and is applying in history. May we never get discouraged. May we never grow disheartened. May we never uh, give up on the things that we are doing, knowing that our labors in the Lord are not in vain. And I pray this uh, uh, great hope, this great encouragement upon this, your congregation. In Jesus' name. Amen.